out of the book of First Peter. We've been in a series going through this great book. It really, in short, it's the uh, it's a book written by Peter, hence the title, uh, to a community of followers of Jesus that are trying their best to follow Jesus, to be faithful to God uh, in a very hostile world. Uh, what we've been describing is suffering. Um, what we've been saying all along is that Peter's writing to them to help them, to empower them, so that as they suffer, they will suffer well. And there's a distinction, right, between suffering, which we all do, and suffering well. Um, I think we can all identify with suffering poorly. We know what that looks like. It looks like self-pity. It looks like frustration. It looks like cynicism. It looks like meaninglessness. We all know what suffering poorly looks like. But Peter's saying, hey, I want to help you to suffer well, to suffer well. And the way he does that is ultimately by pointing our eyes, our attention, uh, back to Jesus. And uh, this becomes really a book of incredible hope. So with that in mind, I want to just read this little passage here. Um, and we will pray, and then we'll get to work looking at this subject of focusing on Jesus. So First Peter chapter 2, I want to pick it up at verse 20, and then we'll skip on down to verse 25. And uh, I should say 24 is going to be the main passage that we're going to be looking at. So here we go. But if you do good and suffer for it, uh, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray and we'll jump in. So Jesus, right now we we just want to tune our hearts to you. God, we pray that you remove um, our worries, our anxieties, our fears, our nervousness, our focus upon our failures, God, whatever it is that would be an inhibitor to us being able to listen to and pay attention to and hear and to be reshaped by you, God, we pray that they would all, for this moment, be suspended. God, help our eyes to just have clarity of who you are in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So again, uh, in the context of suffering well, what we've been saying for the past few weeks as we've been just kind of following verse by verse uh, through this particular book is we've seen number one, verse 20 points out that uh, Peter wants us to be anchored to God's favor. In other words, to recognize that when we suffer and we suffer in a way that is consistent with the nature and the character of God, uh, it says that, he says this is a gracious thing. This is a gift from God, in other words, that God takes great delight in us. Now, again, that, that's enough to just pause right there and just close the book and be uh, be amazed by the fact that this God, who is the ruler over all things in the cosmos, who takes our greatest chaos and creates order out of it, that this God looks affectionately upon us, that's massive. But he gets even better because he then begins to talk about how um, the importance of us being aware of Jesus as our example. But what I want to look at today is, that's verses 21 to 23, I want to look at specifically how he describes Jesus as our sacrifice, sacrifice. And we read the passage again, verse 24, I'll just reread it again so it's fresh in your mind. And I want to just basically take a look at like little phrase by phrase by phrase, because that's kind of the way he describes it, that he borrows this language from the Old Testament. In fact, Isaiah 53, in fact, if you're taking notes, you want to write this down, just write down Isaiah 53, go back later and read it. It's extremely rich. Um, but what I want to just read right now is just listen again. He says, he himself, Jesus, 
bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he gives a summary statement. By his wounds, you have been healed. So let's just do that. Let's just take a look at little phrase by phrase, and then we'll close with some summary thoughts. Is that, is that cool? You guys all good with that? Uh, again, the big idea is how do we suffer well? And what Peter's doing is he's basically saying, look, in order to suffer well, you need a template. You need a model. You need a schematic to be able to focus on. In fact, this is very similar. In fact, if, again, if you're writing notes, you can write down um, Hebrews chapter 12. I think it's verse 2. He describes looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The word uh, author is the word archagon or archagos. Uh, we get, it's the idea of someone who leads the way. Um, maybe in the ancient uh, American language, it'd be like the one who's a pioneer. The one who's pioneers, a trailblazer. He's going down a path that nobody else has ever gone down before, uh, and we follow him. Um, I've given this analogy before, but I think what comes to my mind is if you've ever gone mountain biking or you are doing something like that, running on a trail or whatever, maybe you've never been familiar with, um, mountain biking on a trail that maybe I, I have never been familiar with. I, we just back just did this past last week, and it was a trail I'd never been on, and my idea was I need to stay as close to and as focused on the one who's in front of me as I can. But if I lose sight of that person in front of me, then I get lost. In fact, I'm not going to go into my like little woe is me story, but that's exactly what happened. It was extremely hot, um, and I was we were going uphill, and it was a lot further than what I expected. I didn't have any water. I didn't have any bananas or any form of carbohydrate to get my body going. And I literally hit the wall, and I was beginning to feel faint and shaky. And I'm like, oh, crud. I'm like seven miles into this thing. I don't know exactly where I'm at. I've never been here. I've lost sight of the Archegos. I don't know where they're at. And, I'm, and I turned around. But this is the important idea that he's basically conveying, is that when we go through the path of suffering, who do we look to? What do we, what do we keep our eyes fixed on? This is what the entirety of the New Testament is all about, is to say, as followers of Jesus, we have an archagos. We have someone as a pioneer who's gone before us so that we can actually fix our attention upon and realize that as we suffer, Our suffering doesn't have to just crumple us or destroy us or ruin us. Our suffering can actually bring us out on the other end to places of of life, just like it did to Jesus. So this is why Peter keeps revisiting this topic of Jesus. Again, I'll I'll even just uh, juxtapose this against what other types of information or wisdom, wisdom, uh, parenthetical statement, um, has to offer. My opinions... My experience might have a little bit of uh, leverage for you. It might have a little bit of mileage for you, but that's it. At some point, it will gas out, it will fail. Um, again, this is, this is why it's so significant, guys, as we come together and we study God's word. Really, at the end of the day, it's not about looking at other people's opinions or even their experiences in life. It's looking to Jesus. And that's why we, that's why Peter basically brings us back. He says, I mean, even Peter, Peter, man, that guy knows a lot. He was with Jesus for a very lengthy amount of time. He saw things that you and I would never even see. And yet Peter's just like, look, don't look to me. Look to Jesus. He's the one that will help you. He's the one that will guide you in and through this path of difficulty and hardship that you find yourselves in. So with that, let's just jump in. We'll take a look at each one of these one by one, and then we'll finish up. So, first of all, what we see that Jesus' death uh, happened, and what we see with regard to it is that, number one, it was, it was voluntary. He did this voluntarily. 
Um, this comes from the phrase, he himself, and then the skips a little word, and then it comes back to in his body. He himself in his body. Now, again, this language of himself or his body um, bearing something, this is actually language that's borrowed from the Old Testament. So I'll give you an example. Exodus chapter uh, 38 or 28, verse 38. You can write these down if you'd like as well. It speaks referring uh, to Aaron, the great high priest. It says this, and Aaron, the high priest, will bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel present as their holy gifts. Uh, it shall regularly be on his forehead uh, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So the big picture from the Old Testament is that Aaron, this high priest, he bears something on behalf of others. So what I think is important to note with regard to Jesus' death, Jesus was not a victim of circumstances that were beyond his control. It's important to note this. Jesus gave himself. Jesus' own death was he describes it as, I lay my life down. Nobody kills me. I'm not a victim of this whole thing. I'm giving myself. So there's a voluntary status with regard to what Jesus is doing, which automatically should be raising the question, why? Why would he do this? We'll get to that. But what I want for us to understand is that Jesus acted based upon his own volition. He was not coerced. So again, first thing is that his death happened voluntarily. Secondly, we see that his death was substitutionally, meaning Jesus stood in the place of somebody else. That's what a substitute is. You know, if you have a hard time thinking about what the word substitute is, just think about substitute teacher. Who is and what is a substitute teacher? Not somebody to be taken advantage of, right? Um, it's, I mean, I think you guys have the hardest job on the planet, substitute teachers. Like you step in there and you are taking all this garbage that you don't deserve, and you're doing your best. So my kudos, my hat's off to you. Good job. Uh, but the point that I would make is this, is that that's what a substitute, te- substitute teacher is. They step in the place of the regular teacher. They step in the place of somebody else. And this is what we see, this idea, this concept of substitution. Um, in the Old Testament, we see this concept of substitution appear oftentimes. So I'll, again, I'll give you a couple of examples of this. So the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, verse 22, says the goat will bear all their iniquities on itself and it will be released to a remote place. It shall go free in the wilderness. So this is what was commonly known as the scapegoat. If you've ever heard that phrase, of course you have. Scapegoat. We even use that in modern nomenclature today. Like, oh yeah, we just need a scapegoat. Somebody just beat the tar out of to take the place of the rest of consens- consensual uh, frustration. And scapegoats, they still happen in today's world. What we call it is cancel culture. So the collective anxiety and anger and frustration that culture has towards another person, for whatever reason, you can fill in the blank, that act of canceling them is an act of scapegoating. We're angry with them. We're frustrated with them. We hate them. We despise them. We will cancel them. That's a scapegoat. It's somebody taking the sin of or the collective anxiety upon themselves or being forced upon themselves, and then they get killed or slaughtered. And this is the idea of, in the Old Testament, there was this scapegoat, actual goat, that would be uh, figuratively bearing the sins of the people, and then it was released off into the wilderness. And uh, that was the idea, that this picture was God is going to take away, remove. So the image here is that something that's innocent will bear the defilement of the people and then remove it. That The image is people are defiled, They need the defilement removed. The way that the defilement is removed is by a substitute, somebody standing in their place, removing it and taking it away. This is the image that then gets cultivated into the New Testament. 
So uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, John the baptizer, if you recall, he, when he sees Jesus from a distance, now remember that it's his cousin, so there's obviously a relationship going on here, but um, John sees Jesus, and again, by the way, this is, this is not the language or the vocabulary you typically assign to your cousin, but he goes on to say, then John saw Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John describes this uh, experience, this moment that he sees Jesus. He says, this, Jesus, he's the lamb that will take away the sin of the world. Uh, Their sin, and then Jesus will be the one that will take it away. Um, And this is all basically shaped from language that no doubt comes from, for example, Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, the language that Peter adopts is from Isaiah 53. And I'll take a quick, like, side point to just note that um, a few weeks ago I, I, I noted that Peter is so informed with the scripture that he just he just speaks stuff. He's not even referencing it. He's not even like stating, hey, by the way, guys, this is Isaiah 53. He just speaks and just comes out. Again, like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, in modern you know language, it would be like, oh, that's plagiarism. Like, you didn't give reference, honorable mention to this particular author. Well, Peter just He's so filled with the knowledge of Scripture that he just, he just deposits these gems left and right. And here's what he says, um, quoting Isaiah 53, verse 4. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The language of the New Testament, if you want to get even deeper in this, which I'm not going to at this particular point, there are ideas that are commonly known as atonement theories. In other words, different ways in which how Jesus saves his people from their sins. Um, And the concept of Jesus' substitution has oftentimes been attacked and distorted, and I think in some ways even caricatured. But again, it's a picture that finds its way into the biblical narrative that God actually does something on behalf of people that find themselves covered or defiled or broken down or dead, to use language that Paul says, dead in our trespasses and sins. The image that scripture paints is that that we are in desperate need of outside help. And God steps in to be the one to lift the burden, to carry the guilt, to carry the shame, to remove the defilement from off of us. That language is substitutionary language. If you still need help thinking about this, um, we just commemorated yesterday 9-11. I mean, think about the thousands and thousands of first responders that show up on the scene. They have no idea what they're running into. They just know they're running into a cloud of dust. They don't even know what's in that cloud of dust, many of which would die later, years later, uh, because they absorbed the defilement of that cloud of dust, which was like metal and nastiness and asbestos and all sorts of horrible things that ended up killing them. But in that process of absorbing death, they gave life to many people. They are, to some degree, an image of substitute. They are substitute, and they are giving themselves. They will die in exchange of giving life to others. This is the picture. Um, I think at the same time, we can think about even popular movies today. There's lots of movies today that carry this as sort of the main general theme. I think of Harry Potter. Harry Potter, this is like a main theme. His mom dies so that he would live. Substitutionary. Um, Star Wars, even in some crazy, cryptic, weird way, Darth Vader becomes kind of the substitute to, to die in order to bring life. I mean, again, weird, crazy stuff. But the point of the matter is Chronicles of Narnia, like this Braveheart, Gladiator, all of these are, are popular movies, popular themes, popular narratives that carry this, this message of 
uh, substitutionary a death. Somebody bearing the death so that another would live. If you want one more example, just think of the food chain. The food chain. Um, something that we eat today was once alive. It died so that you could live. It took upon itself. You want to get more cryptic. It took on death so that you could take on life. This is what Peter is reminding us, that as we suffer, understand Jesus knows what it means to bear the sins of many. The third thing that we see is that the death of Jesus happened not only voluntarily, not only substitutionally, but also publicly or openly, uh, which is the language that he uses. He died on the tree. Uh, the language in the way the Greek that Peter uses here is uh, it's execution device or the tree. And literally, it's just an image of a tree. And it, I, there's no doubt Peter's borrowing from language that comes out of De- the book of Deuteronomy. I'll read the passage, and you can kind of see where and why that I believe this. He goes on to say in Deuteronomy chapter 21, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death on a tree, he says, Curses the man that hangs on the tree. This is the, the, the language that Peter's using. He's, he's wanting to draw this comparison that Jesus' death on the cross was him taking upon himself this curse of death for somebody else, not for himself, not because, again, he was a victim of the state, not because he even committed a crime. That's the big message of the New Testament. He was actually innocent. But he dies in the stead or in the place of other people and publicly. Now, I've mentioned this before, but the big idea behind uh, death on a cross was not just simply and surely execution. There's lots of more simplified ways to kill somebody. But the big aim of the cross was public humiliation. It was the worst form of public execution. It was a way of basically shaming that individual, uh, stripping them bare naked, having them uh, open to public mockery and, and shaming them, people throwing things at them. Animals would land on their head and start doing horrible things. I mean, just everything you can imagine about the public execution was what Jesus endured on the cross or on the trees, what he describes. And then fourthly, uh, we see that his death is also purposefully, meaning that there's a teleos, there's an end game that Jesus was up to in this whole thing. Now, here's what I want for us to think about this. The book of Isaiah chapter 53, again, verse 11 says this. I'll just read it and pay attention. He says, out of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, for he will bear their iniquities. So when we talk about talos, it's kind of a philosophical word that basically means the end game. Where's the end? What's the aim? What's the purpose? You know, again, I think a lot of us, we do things, and you ask, like, what's the purpose of that? You know, we might not always be able to articulate what the purpose is of just laying around on the couch, like, watching YouTube videos. I I can tell you, for me, my, my purpose is a little bit muddled. But sometimes I think I would just say, I'm tired, I can't think, so I will just, like, gel and watch YouTube videos. Like, that. my telos is just, like, pretty pretty simple. Just, I don't have any telos other than to just gel. But the point that I'd make is this, is that how many things do we do throughout our day that really don't have any real true end game in sight? But for Jesus, his death was very purposeful. And what Peter says, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, you got to think uh, from a Hebraic perspective here, the idea of sin. Why is that important? And why is that tied into this concept of death? 
Because the way that the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, describes sin is that sin is sort of an aberration. It's basically looking at what God has to say and then saying, I'm going to reject that and then I'm going to embrace my own way, my own thought processes, my own way of feeling that life should be lived. And I will ignore the wisdom that comes from God and I will do what I want to do. But what the Bible describes is that's, that, that is a path that oftentimes, even though it might look like and sound like wisdom, that wisdom that comes from our own emotions or our feelings will at some point have an end that will lead to brokenness and death and ruin, death of relationships, death of a job, death, physical death, all forms, death in, in all of its friends. And what we see here is that Peter's telling us, he's reminding us is that in Jesus' suffering, his suffering, for you was ultimately to bring about a freedom from death, from those that are enslaved by death. I just want you to pause and think about this. What are the ways in which death have enslaved us? In other words, it's just there. We can't get away from it. We can't wipe it off of us. It's on us. It's a part of our life. Have you ever like looked at your life and just thought, man, it feels hopeless in some ways? And what Peter's saying is that it, it really doesn't have to be hopeless because Jesus has provided a way of conquering death so that we might die to sin and death is implied and live to righteousness. In other words, what Christianity is about, it's not about following dogma or just somehow discovering new teachings and ideas or concepts or constructs. It's about an entire new way of life that's oriented around the resurrected God. This is what we see. This is the end game. Now, by way of summary and conclusion here, he describes this little phrase. He says, by his wounds, you are healed. Now, this is like literally a direct quote from Isaiah 53, which I'll read. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the message of the New Testament. We might even do well to call this Good message, good news, because it is good news for those that live in death, those that are infected and affected by death in all of its friends, in all of its ways, in all of its mutations, in all of its present form, either presently now or even in the past that we've experienced and we're still dealing with the trauma of those wounds or the future that leads to our anxiety of like, what's going to happen to my life? What will take place five months from now, six months from now, seven years from now? What will happen then? His whole point is that Jesus provides a way so that death is defeated. Or to use the title of a book, The Death of Death. I love that image because that's exactly what Jesus does is he crushes and destroys death. Fleming Rutledge, she is a theologian and absolutely fantastic. If you've never read anything by her, highly recommend reading anything you can by her. Here's what she says, and I'll finish with some final summary thoughts. Christians do not simply look to the cross with reverence. Just think about that. The cross is not intended to just simply be about sentimentality. Can it be that? Of course it can. But it's more than that is what she's saying. Christians do not simply look to the cross, Christ, with reverence. We are set in motion by its power, energized by it, upheld by it, guaranteed by it, secured by it for the promised future because of its power 
of creating word, of the power of it, the creating word that gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Our labor is not only not in vain, but also has eternal significance because it is being built into God's future in ways that we presently see through a glass darkly, but in the future time, face to face. What she's saying is that right now, your suffering, whatever it is, whatever form, whatever shape it takes, will not presently make sense to you. Stop trying to figure it out. It's futile. Instead, that ache of needing to look at something, of see something, of understanding something, we want that. Because again, like I've said before, we are meaning junkies. We need to have some degree of meaning in our lives. If we don't have meaning, if we find our lives meaningless, all we do is we spend countless hours on TikTok trying to figure out what somebody else is doing so it can distract me from the fact that I have no clue what's going on in my life. There's a better way to live. And what he's saying is that by looking to Jesus, what we do is we begin to realize that yes, in the midst of suffering, though it may not make sense, Jesus suffered for a reason in order to give us life, to conquer death, to bring us into a new family, a new life, a new way of living. So the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, becomes something that's far more than sentimentality. It becomes the very source of empowerment that transforms and changes us. So in closing, the sacrificial death of Jesus, and I would even add, if received by faith, I think reorients our position from a status of defeat to victory, reorients our perspective from loss to incalculable gain, from a posture of cynicism and meaninglessness to gratitude and purpose. Just think about each one of these. The position from defeat to victory. Rather than consistently being in a melancholic state, Eeyore, just everything is full of despair, that we have because of Jesus' victory over death, for us, that victory becomes our victory. Romans 8 describes this. It shapes our perspective from one of crushing loss. Yes, when death infects us, that's painful. When we don't get that job, when we find out it's another negative pregnancy test, when we find out that they said no to us or they broke up with us or we didn't get the class that we had hoped that we were going to get or we didn't get the job or we got passed over for whatever promotion, when those forms of death affect us, when the relational death infects us, that feels weighty. But when we understand the sacrifice of death and what he has done, it reorients our crushing losses into incalculable gains where we begin to realize that, yes, I may and have had suffered loss in this life, but the future is one that's filled with gain. Lastly, this idea of a posture of cynicism and meaninglessness. And I would argue this is probably of greater pandemic upon planet Earth than any other pandemic right now is meaninglessness. People aching for some reason to live. And all we have are countless, immeasurable means to somehow numb us to the fact that we have no clue. We call that entertainment. We call that social media. But the cross offers us 
a posture that says, instead of cynicism and meaninglessness, my heart can be bloated, overfilled, overflowing with gratitude and a deep sense of purpose. We call this good news. My hope as we conclude, as we go to the table, that we would recognize, though we don't deserve this, this is the good news that has been given to us. God loves us. God loves you. He invites you to trust him, to be brought into this new world where death does not define you. Jesus defines you. Where our pains and our observable ache that's all around us does not have to be what defines our landscape. Jesus can be, by faith, looking to him and seeing what he's done. So as we go to the table right now, as we close things up, why don't we all stand? We will sing a song. If you have kids and you would like to bring them in, you're more than welcome to bring them in to partake in communion with us. And the way that we do this is we have some elements that are in the front right up here, some in the back as well, and we will just sing a brief song, and uh, then we will partake of communion together, and then we will dismiss y'all. So let me pray. And as we close out, my invitation to you would be to maybe just close your eyes and answer your phone. <laughs> just kidding. And uh, I, I want just to reflect upon God's word and the revelation that he's just given to us. That this God loves us so much that he takes upon himself something that he didn't need to. He didn't bring the mess of brokenness into this world, but he did something about it. I mean, think of that degree of responsibility that he took upon himself. We're filled, our world is filled with irresponsible people, right? Filled with it. We might even be one of those people. In various times throughout our day, we are those people. But God is the God that takes responsibility and has proven it through his death on the cross for very, very irresponsible people. What Peter would say is this is the love that God has for this world and for you that's put on display.